My name is Aaron Barnett. I am, I am the director of middle school ministries here at the Florence campus of Grace Fellowship Church. And I am honored to get to preach this morning. I'm very grateful. I, I normally teach in middle school about uh, anywhere from 10 minutes to 30 Uh, depending on the night or what's going on. Uh, But I'm preaching a little bit longer than I'm used to. So I got to prepare, uh, study, pray uh, quite a bit more than I'm used to. Uh, And I have a seemingly much more attentive audience than I'm used to, which I'm excited about. And I do ask that you would be attentive this morning because I I see three things, three needs required of you this morning. From Luke 14, verses 1 through 14. We are in the parables series. And if you've been to any of the uh, sermons in this series, Brad and several others have mentioned that a parable is designed to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson by telling a simple, understandable, relatable story. Jesus used parables often. Jesus drew crowds. They followed him. He's going across the lake. Let's go over there. They followed him. He did miracles. He perceived and knew people's thoughts. He knows our every thought. But I think Jesus drew crowds because he had a way with words. He spoke to people personally, where they were at, what they had going on. They wanted more. And it's because it was truth. Our souls are hungry for truth. Jesus is truth. One of the ways he did that, though, was parables. Jesus often said, the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God. Jesus was drawing people to himself. He wanted to draw people to the Father. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus understands that we all have hearts and we are designed in such a way that we're supposed to be in communion with God, but we're broken, we're sinful, and we can't be. Jesus wanted people to come to him because he is the way to be in right relationship with God. Jesus also taught, and he wanted people to see spiritual, eternal things. Not earthly, here, temporal, passing. John 3, the story of Nicodemus. Some of you probably know it well, others maybe not. I encourage you highly this week, go read John 3. It's an awesome story. A man, Nicodemus, is a Pharisee, a leader. He comes to Jesus and they're talking. And Jesus does something when he talks to people, when he tells parables, but also when he's talking one-on-one. And here's an instance, he switches things. Jesus is talking about birth. Nicodemus understands birth. Everybody who's born, they have a mama, right? They get it. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you need to be reborn. Nicodemus says, I need to crawl back in my mama's womb. Read the story. He genuinely was confused. But Jesus switched it, said, it's your heart, man. Spiritual rebirth. You're sick. You don't know it. Jesus is getting at his heart. The very next chapter, John chapter 4, you probably know this story well also. The woman at the well. Read John 3 and John 4 this week at some point. There's a woman. She's at a well. They're talking about water. Go figure. 
She understands water. She understands having to go and get water. Jesus switches things. He says, you're thirsty. And I can give you living water. And if you taste it, you'll never thirst again. How do I get that water? I don't have to come to the well. Jesus is saying, woman, your soul is thirsty. And you're looking at all these other things that aren't going to satisfy. But God, the Father, can satisfy. And I am the way to the Father. I am the living water. Jesus was speaking to her heart. Jesus wants your heart this morning. Luke 6, 46. Why do you say, speak, Lord, Lord? God, praise you. Lord, Lord. But you don't obey him. Matthew 12, 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart is important. Proverbs 4.23 Above all else, guard your heart for everything flows from it. With that being said, I would like to pray and I want you guys to set your heart. Ask God to help you set your heart on seeing what Jesus is saying in Luke 14 this morning. Pray please with me. God, thank you, thank you, thank you for your word. Thank you for truth that is solid and unchanging. And we have copies of it all over the place that we can read and come to. Would you please help our minds and our hearts to soak up the truth from it and what you would have us here. Give us faith. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we ask that you would reveal yourself to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke 14. And I'm going to read 1 through 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and he healed him and sent him on his way. And he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Verse 7, now he told a parable to those, the others who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Rather, when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who exalts, or he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return, and you be repaid. 
But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Before we go through this, I want, I want to stick one thing in your minds. And if nothing else, remember this. From this parable, from this story, the first 14 verses, the kingdom of God is not about you and all you do. The kingdom of God is about you and your standing before God. Verse 1, we see this is the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is important because it's in the law. It's commanded. Something to be protected. Something that we know, right? Also, the Pharisees, who Jesus dealt with a lot, they were, they were found in the scriptures recorded as watching Jesus. They wanted to catch him, right? And the Sabbath is one of those particular occasions that we can read in scripture. There's accounts of multiple times Jesus dealing with the Pharisees regarding the Sabbath. And I would like to turn to 13 chapter 13 of Luke, just a chapter before, to get some context, some insight, some understanding about Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees in dealing with the Sabbath. Follow along. I'm going to start in verse 10 of chapter 13. Now he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and he immediately, and, and immediately she was straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. He said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, but not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue on a Sabbath day and there is a woman there that he sees and he heals her. And the leader of the synagogue is indignant. How could you break the law? People, there are six days. Come on those days, but not not the Sabbath. Jesus says, you hypocrites. You untie your animal to feed it on the Sabbath. Why would I not untie this woman who has been bound for 18 years on the Sabbath? He puts him to shame. Let's look now back at the the first section of our passage in, in chapter 14. And look at the striking similarities. Verse 1, the Sabbath. It's a Sabbath day. Verse 2, there's a sick individual who had dropsy. Currently, that's edema. I'm not going to get into it, but he was sick. And Jesus, before the lawyers and the Pharisees could even ask, Jesus says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Verse 3 and 4. They don't say anything. Jesus heals him and sends him on his way. Verse 5. 
Which of you wouldn't immediately pull your, your kid, your son, your ox out of a well if they fell into it on the Sabbath day? Again, verse six, they had nothing to reply to these things. Jesus is exposing the rigidness of the Pharisees' religion, morality, and beliefs. You see, they hold tightly to it with others when they can hold other people to it. The law, this is the law, we know it. They hold tightly to it when it, when it protects them, when it benefits them, when they look and they can place themselves above, other, above, above others. Hold to the law. Then they loosen up a little bit as soon as they're the one who needs to work on the Sabbath. They loosen up when it benefits them. The Pharisees were all about benefiting themselves. I'm not even to the parable yet, but here's my first point, first need. You need to revisit the motives of what you say and do. What were the Pharisees' motives? Let's turn to Matthew 23 and get a very clear understanding of what the Pharisees' motives were. 23, 1 through 7. Jesus is talking to his disciples in the crowd. So verse 1. Matthew 23, 1 to 7. Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. What were the Pharisees' motives? Appearance, being seen by others. Let me ask, how much of your religion, your Christian lifestyle, is to be seen by others? It's not always bad, actually, on the contrary. We must speak. We must stand out. We must be an example and set the example. According to God's word and our our testimonies, we need to act and speak in accordance with God's word, and we can. Make no mistake, though, don't hear what is not being said. This is a call to revisit your motives. Maybe nothing in your life needs to change at all. You just need to relook at the why that is driving what you say and what you do. You come to worship. You raise your hands, how you sing. Split seconds, thoughts come into our minds. Who's watching? Who's looking? Is my hand raised right? Do I raise both? Our heart is deceitful. Attending church, or you go to a small group, just trying to appease your spouse, get your mom off your back. I go to church, mom. The language you use, name dropping, being known, the way you speak, the way you say it. Do you want it coming back to you? 
You building others up or yourself? I recently went to a, um, another church with a youth pastor friend of mine I get together with regularly. And uh, they had just redone their student ministry section, their youth group area. He was excited and wanted to show me. And I walk in and classic, he's got some interns who are in there playing ping pong, hanging out, waiting for him to get back from his meeting. And uh, I go up and introduce myself to, to one of the interns and he's like, oh yeah, you're Aaron Barnett. I've heard of you. I have been heard of. I have arrived. Man, how that felt good to my flesh. Somebody knew my name. Somebody's talked about me. Now, I didn't even know if it was bad or good that he's heard about me, but the fact that he knew my name and heard of me. Only by the grace of God was I able to remind myself that I am who I am by the grace of God. I am where I am by the grace of God. I'm a minister of the gospel for God's glory, not my own. But it's not just working at church. The corporate world, the corporate ladder, it's not bad to be high in a position, to be well-known, to have people under you. Maybe you don't even know them, but they've heard of you. It's your heart. What feeds what you do, how you act, how you talk. Some of you maybe have experienced a situation with a one-upper type of person, or maybe you've been this person. You know, I go to small group. Last week, I had some free time. I went to two small groups. Oh, that's cool. Well, a couple of weeks ago, actually, I had free time. My wife was out of town. I went to three. In college, I used to go to one every day of the week. There's like 20 people in my small group. There's 50 in mine. It's just, no, that's a childish, silly example. But in our hearts, we place ourselves above others. Maybe we don't say it. It's like, I've done that before and I did it better. How many fans of social media in here? I'm not raising my hand either. It's okay. (laughs) Social media is an absolutely incredible tool. It really is, if you think about it. The day and age we live. But there's this thing that people do, they, they get this, this nice table that's like some really old-fashioned looking wood or something, it's grainy and cool, and they put their Bible on it and their cup of coffee and a notebook and some pens, and they, they edit the picture they take of it with like, make it all fuzzy and blurry and it looks all cozy and warm, and they post it for everybody to see with maybe a verse highlighted or even scripture they type in the foreground of the, the forefront of the picture. Why do people do that? Why do you do that? It is a gift that we have the ability with one click, one picture to send gospel, word of God, truth to however many people view it on social media. It's an awesome thing. I have been encouraged many times by people who post those pictures. But check your motives. Do you want people seeing your picture, your Bible, how you underline, coffee mug you got? Do you want people thinking well of you? He reads the Bible. He reads scripture. Or are you genuinely wanting to encourage people with the truth that you're posting? Check your motives. It's easy for us, myself included, 
to practice differently than I preach. We have to revisit our motives. Do you hold yourself to the same standard you hold others to? I was at dinner, I was at dinner recently with my wife, Eliza, her, her side of the family, some, some cousins, aunts and uncles, and we have two daughters, Rebecca, who's two and a half, and Catherine, who's nine months. And we had our daughter, Catherine, the nine-month-old, with us. The older one was with some friends, uh, not at dinner with us. And none of these cousins, who are all about my wife and I's age, none of them are married, and you can just see their curiosity. They, they watch us in the married life and what's that like? And our daughter who's nine months just shoving her face full of food all messy. She's adorable. And it's, it's kids in the married life. And, it's, and the cousin sitting next to me leaned over at dinner and she said, is it fun being a parent? I said, yes, it is. But it's hard. She looked at me so puzzled and confused. And I told her just yesterday, my daughter I was trying to teach her, just because you don't get what you want, Rebecca, doesn't mean you can kick and scream. And you've got to be patient. We said we'd give this to you, but when did we say we'd give it to you? You've got to wait. And the cousin looked at me even more confused. And I said, I don't like to be patient. I don't like when I don't get my way, when I want it. Parenting is hard. It's fun, yes, but it's hard because not only do I have to teach and train and discipline, I have to exemplify. Growing up, and today I'll date myself here. Some of you may still, but growing up I used to listen to, and I still do today, I listen to DC Talk. Any DC Talk fans? Yes, yes. They had a song that impacted me in high school and even growing up. And I didn't understand it and I thought I did. And more and more I've understood it and I've thought about it as I get older. And I have to live my life in such a way. Here's the quote. The single greatest cause of atheism today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyles. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Parenting is hard. Being a Christian is hard. Especially in our day and age when we're all about us and self and what can I get and what can I buy and what can I drive? How much money can I get? How many friends can I have? How cool can I be? Whatever it is, what clothes... Name it. Fill in the blank for yourself in your own heart. What is it for you? Revisit your motives. Do you practice what you preach? Second point. Second need that I see. You need to see yourself rightly before others and before God. Read with me verses 7 to 11 back in Luke 14. We'll discuss, you need to see yourself rightly before others and before God. Verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame. 
to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, your friend, hey friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is further exposing their hearts by teaching that when we exalt ourselves, either in or outwardly, excuse me, outwardly, so the place of honor, we take the seat that we think we deserve. We talk about ourselves, we boast about us. Outwardly, we exalt ourselves, or inwardly, we think highly of ourselves, more than others. Exalting ourselves is not going to go well for us. It's not going to go well for you. In a worldly sense, even it's, it's biblical, and I'm going to read a verse here in a second. It's biblical, but in a worldly sense, you talk to anybody, and you show them a video clip of, of a person who is all about themselves. They're selfish. They're arrogant. They're obnoxious. They're self-seeking. And then you show a video of somebody who is a servant. They're humble. They're thinking about others. They're helping others. Arrogance and pride is not attractive. Humility is. Proverbs 25, 6 and 7 says, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, Come up here than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Come up here, man. Hey, step down. It's better to be told, Come forward than to be told, Go to the, go to the back. Inwardly, our hearts are sick. Our flesh will deceive us. We are sinful. The kingdom is not about appearance and outward. It's about the heart. The kingdom of God is not about you and all you do. The kingdom is about the throne of your heart. More specifically and more importantly, the kingdom is about who is on the throne of your heart. I've already told you and shown you from Scripture that Jesus is concerned and always getting at the heart. Biblically, when we view ourselves rightly and your condition, it is much easier to view yourself rightly before others. I dare say it's naturally going to happen. There's a quote in your bulletin. Follow along as I read. J.C. Ryle articulates well what I'm trying to say, what I think Jesus is trying to say. The root of humility is right knowledge. The man who really knows himself and his own heart, who knows God and his infinite majesty and holiness, who knows Christ and the price at which he was redeemed, that man will never be a proud man. He will count himself like Jacob, unworthy of the least of all God's mercies. He will say of himself like Job, I am vile. He will cry like Paul, I am chief of sinners. He will think anything good enough for him. In lowliness of mind, he will esteem everyone else to be better than himself. Ignorance. Nothing but sheer ignorance. Ignorance of self, of God, and of Christ is the real secret of pride. 
From that miserable self-ignorance, may we daily pray to be delivered. He is the, is the wise man who knows himself, and he who knows himself will find nothing within to make him proud. I believe that every human being on the planet was designed in the image of God. But no human being is exactly the same as far as our makeup, you know, physically. Even identical twins, something's different. Muscle mass, bone density, I don't know. But we're all identical humans everywhere in all of history in that we have been designed with a throne room in our hearts. And I believe deep down there are only two people that can be on the throne of your heart. Either God or yourself. Who's on the throne of your heart? When you handle a situation at home, at work, with family, school, pick the place. There's a situation that comes up and you handle yourself accordingly. You're respectful. You're kind. You practice discretion. Responsibility. You're thankful. You kept your cool. You were calm, collected. You, you resolved some, some issue, some confusion. And you were praised for it. You did a good job. You acted rightly. I did a good job. I handled myself rightly. I, I did good. We don't go and tell other people. Do you see how I handled that situation over there? But in our hearts, even as Christians, when we counsel people, when we encourage people, when we pray, man, that was a good prayer. When you worship, you speak up in small group, you testify in Testimony Sunday, all good things. Are people watching? Do they see me? What are they thinking of me? Are they thinking well of me? It's a heart problem, people. Our heart is deceitful and wicked and wants the flesh, wants us, ourselves, to be on the throne. <laughs> I, um, I fly in planes sometimes. Not as often as Brad Bigney. I have a story about a plane conversation from seven years ago. <laughs> Airplanes are good places. Close contact with people sometimes, awkwardly so. Over the past decade of my life, I think there have been just a handful of people that I've known pretty well, some of them not so much, that I've not known what to do with. They were outspoken unbelievers. Didn't know God, didn't want to know God. Didn't know Jesus, didn't want to know Jesus. But their lifestyles were more Christian than most of the professing believers I knew. Not knowing how to process that. I was on a flight coming back from overseas, a work, a, a work trip, and it was a long flight. And I, I found myself sitting next to a woman, very polite, very kind, very soft-spoken. She was a Red Cross volunteer and was coming back from volunteering her time upwards of a year, even more than that, I think, in a third world country, a, a difficult people group. And she was helping and serving But she was not a believer, didn't know God, wasn't interested. 
But do you know what I came to find is so sad as I talked to her and as I've thought about that conversation over the past years? Do you know what she was doing? She was serving, which was good, but she was trying to make herself feel good about herself. Our hearts, we want to feel good about ourselves. We're good enough. We can do it. All this bad stuff in my past, so I'm going to do this to, to cover that up. We don't say that, but that's kind of how our minds function. Those of you who are believers in the room whose lives are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, praise the Lord. Revisit your motives constantly. How do you stay humble? Read God's word and pray. God is the spiritual humbler. Read God's word and pray and say, Lord, show me my sin. Show me my heart. Humble me. Help me to think rightly about my righteousness, which is as of filthy rags. Those of you who are here not tracking with what I'm saying or just quite frankly, maybe you're defensive, um, or whatever it be, think I'm calling you a Pharisee. I think at times in our lives, even the most mature Christians go through seasons. We struggle with sin. We're pharisaical. Big word, we act like Pharisees. We're hypocrites. We have to constantly go back and check our motives and come to the, to the foot of the cross again and again and again. Do you know what the problem was for the Pharisees though? Like the woman on the plane I talked to, you know what her problem was? Looks a little different, but it was misplaced faith. The Pharisees, they thought the way into the kingdom was in their own ability to say and do and manage their facade and their appearance. Know scripture, know the law, know the the prophets, the prophecies, and how, how you look and the people you associate with. I can do this. I am doing this. It's no different today. There are people who feel like the way into the kingdom is because of the things we do and the way we do them and the things we say and the way we say them. The way into the kingdom, sorry, merit and good works will not get you into the kingdom, John MacArthur says. The way into the kingdom is bankruptcy of self. Mourn over your condition. The fact of the matter is you are a sinner in need of righteousness because that is all that God will accept. And you don't have any. You can try, you can try, you can try. The Pharisees could try and try and try. But we can't do it. But praise be to God, Jesus Christ did do it. He lived a perfect life. He was obedient he trusted his father. He set, he set his face on the end goal, which was redeeming those of us who choose to believe and place our faith in him. He paid the righteous and just requirement that you were supposed to pay but never could. And now because of that, because of Christ's righteousness, if you're a believer, we can go to the, to the foot of the cross with our sin, with our shame, with whatever we've got going on. When we mess up, we don't have to wallow in our sin. Because you know what that is? Brad said it multiple times. When we wallow, it's just pride. 
Oh, woe is me. I'm feeling sorry for myself. You're thinking about yourself. Because of Christ's righteousness in the cross, we can go and we can be done with our sin and we can move forward and try to glorify God more and pursue holiness and obedience. And when we stumble and fall, we can go to the cross again and again and again. Yes, thank you, Lord. We can go forward. Another, another reminder, another need, the third point. You need to stay focused on eternal rewards, not earthly and temporal ones. Read with me verse 12 to 14 of Luke 14. He continues the parable here, verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Huh? What am I going to get out of this though? Let me just start off by saying that Jesus is not saying don't ever have family or friends or neighbors or wealthy people over for meals. Keep doing that. It's a good thing. Celebrate holidays, family, friends after church. Go out to eat. Be thankful. Enjoy food that God has given us and the money we have to buy. Remember who Jesus is talking about here. The context is set in verses 1 through 6. Jesus starts off the party by exposing their hypocrisy, seeking to get at their hearts. Verses 7 to 11, Jesus turns to the other guests and starts the parable. He exposes their hearts by talking about humility. Stop trying to exalt yourself. A kingdom heart is a humble heart. Now in verse 12 to 14, Jesus turns to the host and continues with the story, but this time exposing the Pharisees' desire for reward. Reciprocity. A reciprocal relationship. As the saying goes, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. The Pharisees, I'm going to invite you to my party and you're going to invite me to your party next year. I'm going to give to your needs fully expecting you're going to give to my needs. The Pharisees were all about themselves. What am I going to get out of this? How am I going to benefit? How will this promote me? For us now and for them, but for us today, this happens so fast, subconscious even. It's not like we have these pre-calculated moves to build ourselves up. We show up at a party and there's seats, you know, labeled and there's one that says, awesome person. It's like, that's mine. You take it. You know how it happens? It happens like this. How you pull yourself into a conversation how you relate things to yourself, what's going on in your life, your accomplishments, awards, great tales of glory and fame, whatever it may be. You talk about you. How you interact with people when you talk to them. Are you thinking about what you've got going on that day? Sometimes it's hard not to because we're so busy. It's a constant choice. Are you thinking about others and who you're talking to and what they've got going on? Are they happy? Are they sad? Are they joyful? Are they encouraged, discouraged, suicidal? 
Do you conduct yourself in a way that benefits you? Do you want things to come back to you? When you name drop, when you post those pictures, it's like, are you hoping it comes back to you some way? People talk about you in such a way? Are you promoting yourself? You can see how this is all connected, pride and being about yourself. But this third point, we need to stay focused on eternal reward. I want to turn to Matthew 6. Go there with me, please. And we get a perfect picture of what I'm trying to say. Matthew 6, starting in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. We have to remind ourselves of the reward that is to come. Not what we can get right here, right now. And lastly, and in closing, before we sing one more song, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 16 and following. 2 Corinthians four sixteen. So we do not lose heart Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. An eternal weight of glory, guys. Skip to chapter 5, verse 6 in 2 Corinthians So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Reward is coming. It is coming. Don't misplace your faith like the Pharisees. Place it in the kingdom of God that is to come eternal, glorious, beyond all comparison. Don't place it in things here, the praise of men, so fleeting and passing. 
Your faith has to be in Christ and his righteousness or else it is misplaced if it's in anything else. The kingdom of God is not about you and all you do. It's about your standing before God. It is about the throne of your heart and who is on it. Revisit your motives. Check yourself. Humble yourself and pray for humility. And remind yourself of the reward that is to come. This life is not home. Home is coming.